Hello and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling Magazine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week we start off with a discussion between myself and senior editor Nick DeSena on the e-bicycle craze that seems to be so hot right now. We've tried various e-bicycles over the last year or so, but the question still remains. Are they pseudo-motorcycles? Are they a gateway perhaps to motorcycling? And are they here to stay? In the following segment, editor Don Williams chats with associate editor Damon Powell about the new Kawasaki KLR650. The venerable KLR has been around since 1987 and Damon has written, well, all of them. (laughs) I hope you enjoy this episode. As a reminder, please let us know your feedback on our podcast, good or bad, and especially if you have any suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us either on our Facebook page at Motos and Friends or email us at podcast at ultimatemotorcycling.com. Thank you. So I was in Santa Monica. This was actually a couple of years ago, and it was quite interesting because they have these electric bicycles that are now kind of all the rage and these electric bicycles were were parked up in racks and you can kind of cruise up to one stick in your credit card and get to ride around on the thing and i'm like okay this is all good and i saw some guy riding past he was flying past doing probably i don't know 20 miles an hour he clearly had a throttle he certainly wasn't pedaling and i looked at him i was like that is not a bicycle my friend that is a low-powered motorcycle powered by an electric engine. And it sort of got me thinking. Um, I mean, I'll tell you in a minute about um, a couple of Yamaha bicycles that TJ and I got to ride. Actually, we got to to use them. But I'm interested, it, it really got me thinking, just seeing that made me feel like electric, are electric bicycles a gateway to motorcycles? Generally speaking, yeah, of course. You know, anything that's a, a an entry level sort of thing into the two wheeled world. You know, a lot of us started with BMX bikes and mountain bikes, and that eventually graduated to motorcycles. But the the path that you you take to the motorcycle can be different for a lot of di- different people. And I think that the various things that are out there in the world, as far as you know, commuter transportation. The, the bird scooters that we see in major cities and things like that, the, the pay-as-you-go stuff that you've already described, you know, a lot of that would eventually, you know, give rise to the the thought of, man, maybe I should just buy a motorcycle. Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But like I said, there's all sorts of different flavors of it. Um, the Yamahas that TJ and I used were really impressive, but they needed you to pedal. I mean, there was no throttle control. They were pedal assist. And they were absolutely awesome. I mean, they they took away the need to, you know, pedal uphill, if you like. You could dial in the level of assist to the point where everywhere was simply a flat road. And it made it great. I mean, we could do tens and tens of miles without any level of exhaustion. And for a couple of people in their twilight years, um, that is extremely, an extremely beneficial thing. I know you rode the Giant a couple of years ago, a Giant mountain bike, but I know you've also ridden a couple of other things as well. How, how are 
how are you feeling about all of these different genres and where it's going? Yeah, so the, the bikes that you described are definitely the the more mainstream takes on e-bikes or what we would conventionally refer to as e-bikes. So pedal-assisted bicycles, basically. And like you said, they give a huge benefit in terms of just supplementing the amount of power that a human can put down through the powertrain. You know, in my experience with the giants that I've ridden and a couple other brands from Specialized and so on and so forth, it really doesn't take away from the exercise aspect of it. But what it does for me personally is allow me to extend the ride and get over, you know, some of the more arduous hill climbs that would have really just sort of gassed me out um, within a couple of passes. Call me crazy, but doing long, very difficult hill climbs on analog bikes is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a test of physical fitness and it is a challenge, but really I want to go downhill stuff quite fast. So it just facilitates that all, you know, all that much better. Um, but that's when we talk about, you know, conventional pedal assist bicycles, which they run the gamut as far as the offerings. You have commuter stuff, road bikes, you know, typical straight up and down road bikes, hybrids, EMTBs, and that's just really scratching the surface as far as um, genres. Uh, and then actually yesterday, I just had an opportunity to ride something that's a little bit more on the the sort of uh, entry level. And I'll, I'll consider this really a, a gateway product. And it's from a Southern California based company called Super 73. They offer an electric and pedal assist uh, bicycle. Now they refer to it as a motor bike, which I guess is the most um, direct way to refer to it. But really it sits on, I would say the cruiser side of things. So I, I see a lot of these in beach communities, you know, Huntington Beach, um, Newport Beach, et cetera, et cetera. And it really fits in with that lifestyle. Now, importantly, and the thing about them is that they are pedal assist. Which model is this one? This is the Super 73 ZX. So it's not their base model, but it will take over that position in the future as far as uh, Super 73 staff explained it to me. And it's, you know, it looks very old school. It's pretty small, has 20 inch wheels, banana seat. And the important thing about it is that it offers pedal assist as well as a throttle you know, much like a, a uh, ATV or quad or something like that. And I think that's a really good gateway product and a lot more approachable from the general market. And in the same way that the, the sort of commuter bicycles that you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, as well as those scooters, they all have that, that sort of, uh, you know, uh, just very unintimidating, extremely intuitive nature to them. But that's, that's something that I'm really curious about is that, that Super 73 product. Excellent. I mean, I, I agree. I, I have, a, have a difficult time figuring out where each one of them, each one of them fits. Um, I mean, I was a big fan of the Yamahas. They, were, they are great. Um, and actually, we're thinking of buying a couple, a, a couple more. Um, so rather than just test riding them, actually owning some of these things because they are so versatile. I, I, but but there are so many different models. The reason I haven't yet taken the plunge is because I'm not entirely sure which one to get. There's, you know, there's the smaller tired ones with the fat tires. Um, like you say, the banana seat thing, I'm a little concerned about because me personally, I'm such an odd shape. I have a very short torso and I have very long legs. And 
unless I can raise the seat up to some odd odd size, I'm worried I'm going to not be able to to sort of fit on it properly. So it seems like a real wrestling match to try and figure out what which particular bike to take the plunge on. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it comes down to application. Something like the Super 73 really fits in with um, just local commuter lifestyle because oddly enough, if you look at the, the actual design of bikes in the, the Super 73 line, they're more lifestyle oriented things. Again, we're talking about something that's extremely unintimidating and just a get on and go thumb actuated throttle, really low seat height, uh, very approachable power delivery. And the fact that it has um, approximately, if I remember the specs correctly, between like a 20 and 30 mile range, depending on your usage. It also can achieve 26 miles per hour unassisted. Wow, that's that's quite fast. Yeah, it is, especially when you're on something that's a fat tired, you know, 20 inch rim, uh, you know, pseudo bicycle. Um, but that's, I would say on the lifestyle side. So really for me, something like the Super 73 is a supplement to whatever you're doing at the time and sort of, um, you know, if you're camping, doing traveling, strapping that thing to the back of the camper, throwing it in the back of the van, uh, using it as a pit bike, as the, the little grocery getter around the neighborhood. If you happen to live in um, a tight little community like that, where you can just kind of skitter around the neighborhood and do your, your, your errands and things like that. Whereas what we're describing with the, the conventional e-bikes, um, you know, they run the gamut as far as what we're already seeing uh, on the, the, the bicycle offering. So commuter, mountain bikes, road bikes, et cetera, et cetera. It really comes down to application. Again, like I said. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Something like the Super 73, that's a lifestyle-oriented product. Very fun, very easy to use, good brakes, you know, competent little thing, but it's supplementary in my opinion. Whereas the, the conventional e-bikes are just an extra step on what we already understand bicycling to be and what it what what those various genres are able to accomplish. You know, if you're really after mountain biking, then obviously an e-bike is going to be the way to go because um, or an e-MTB is going to be the way to go for you because that's that's what you were interested in doing already. Especially if you know um, you might be a little bit older, you might be inexperienced. You know, there's some uh, other inhibiting factors where you just can't do those long, you know, uh, stints in the saddle and that, that electric motor and the pedal assist, it really pushes you over the hill and gets, gets the job done. Um, but that, that's kind of where I'm at with it. You know, the, the conventional bicycles, um, that just follows the, the genres that we already know to exist. Whereas stuff like the super 73 scooters, et cetera, et cetera, that's, you know, it, it, it colors our, our life experiences, we'll say. I've noticed that there are different uh, different types of drive. Um, the Yamahas had the sort of the mid drive. In other words, the drive was attached to the center crank in the, the center part of the, of, of the bicycle. But I've also seen hub drive bicycles where the drive, the motor is actually attached to one of the wheels. I think these, these rental units, sometimes they can be um, front wheels, and I get a bit concerned about torque steer with those, but there seems to be um, rear hub drive motors seem to be very popular, and 
perhaps more efficient than mid-drive, I'm not sure. Do you have any opinion on the different type of spec? If somebody was looking for a bike, is a mid-drive the one to go for or, or does it really not matter? Yeah, I would say when you're looking at the more performance-oriented e-bikes, uh, mid-drive is going to be the way to go for a number of reasons. One, the, the electric motor is going to be centralized within the entire chassis, so you have a better uh, weight distribution in the overall package. Also, it's going to be helping with uh, lowering the center of gravity and continuing to uh, enhance your ability to control the bike, whether that's a road bike, hybrid, or EMTB, whatever it is. Hub drives, at least my understanding of them, is that they're applied to things with a more commuter aspect to them. And, and that application makes a lot of sense because, well, it's a hub-driven vehicle and it doesn't have to put up or take any abuse. That's something that an EMTB might have to uh, uh, you know, sustain and suffer throughout its lifetime. Um, hub drives are beneficial in the sense that everything is centrally located. Um, you know, its entire powertrain is just right there attached to the hub. And, uh, you know, from a manufacturing perspective, there, I could see some advantages there. And to that point, like I said, uh, stuff like the uh, Super 73, that uses hub-driven uh, motors on, on a, across their, their entire line. Um, and a lot of the commuter bikes that you see for rent in major cities typically are hub-driven as well. But really, you know, if you're in the performance mindset, then I would, I would really steer towards anything that's going to have a mid-drive. And then, um, you know, for commuting, hub drive is fine. It's just, it's not going to need to, to sustain that type of abuse. And, um, you know, it, it, it really just depends on your application. Sure. Yeah, that, I, I totally see that. And of course, leading beyond that, then all of a sudden you've got every different range of motor out there. You can go from anything from about a 300 watt watt motor or you know 350 there are plenty of 500 watt applications that i've seen 750 watt and of course a thousand watt applications and we're motorcycle guys so we always want more power i mean if a 750 watt motor is good then a thousand watt motor's got to be great but i don't think that necessarily quite translates in the e-bike class simply because the bigger motor which you may not need is obviously going to reduce your range a lot because if you're only carrying a certain size battery why have a big motor that's going to soak up the battery a whole lot quicker surely it'd be better to have a smaller motor that's a little bit more um, fits with with how you're going to be riding it and will therefore give you a lot more range so do you have any thoughts on how somebody can identify what is the best size motor to go for? Yeah, that's that's actually a pretty tough question, um, mainly because as you already hit on uh, with with the point of this, is uh, power of the motor is going to be affecting its draw on the battery. And therefore you have to get that balance between performance and mileage. You know, thinking to commuter orients and things. And again, I'm going to keep using the, the Super 73 ZX as a reference point because I just wrote it yesterday. It's actually equipped with a 750 watt uh, hub-driven motor. So that sounds fairly high-end to me. And the 750 watt motor in a hub drive, I think is quite quite a powerful motor. 
It's, it is, and it is, and it does have a lot of get up and go. Um, so four modes are available and 26 miles an hour. I mean, holy mackerel, I mean, that's- Yeah, in the, yeah. In the unlimited mode, uh, I was able to achieve sustained 26 miles an hour with no pedal assist. So that's under its own power. And it's a, a 750 watt nominal and then 1200 peak watt. So it's a very powerful motor. <laughs> no wonder the range is only 30 miles. I say only, I mean, 30 is probably ample. You know, if you look at competitors, um, uh, for example, we'll use the Yamaha e-bikes. Um, so the YDX series or um, uh, so their gravel bike, for example, that I remember, um, their, their wattage goes from two, uh, 250 watts nominal to 500 watts max. Um, and of course, you know, uh, torque numbers and things like that are going to be different. But um, products like the Super 73, again, are aimed at a little bit different uh, type of user. That's someone that may not be interested in the true pedal assist function of it. Now, if you do use pedal assist on something like that, you're going to get a lot more mileage out of that battery simply because, well, you're not using the battery as much. Whereas the e-bike is really reinforcing the concept of pedal assist for two reasons. One, you do not have a throttle of any kind. Uh, so you can't just rely on the electric motor. And second, it really is still trying to give you a riding experience that at least incorporates the, the concept. I, I joke, and that's sort of the, the, the poke in the prod at e-bike users is that it's a bit of cheating, which I'm fully ready to admit that it, it totally is. But um, the reality is I have nothing to gain about bragging how I can climb, you know, various roads and trails in my area and, and get the best times on Strava because I didn't select e-bike instead of standard bicycle. But um, the e-bike e wants you to enjoy the ride and still get a good, you know, get, get some good cardiovascular activity while also having that assist on hand when needed. <laughs> Now, the, the crucial point about the e-bike is when you do run out of battery, that becomes quite the workout, let me tell you. So, did that a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, actually, that was, that was going to be my next question, was going to be, there seems to be a big disparity in weight. I mean, when you consider that, I don't know what a standard bicycle weighs, um, you know, standard not highly specialized mountain bike made of all carbon fiber i would imagine they're about 15 to 20 pounds probably um the typical e-bike from what i can tell is knocking on the door of something like 50 and a lot of these other bikes um and i'd be interested in where the rad 73 zx fits in but i've seen them as much as 60 and 70 pounds that's starting to get fairly heavy like you say, you run out of battery, you're not pedaling that very far. Yeah, um, that's that's sort of the issue with with the e-bike in its current status. I mean, the average aluminum MTB, uh, you're looking at something anywhere from the high 20s to low 30s, and we're talking about fairly high-end, uh, full suspension mountain bikes. With, with electric mountain bikes? No, no, no. So this is an analog, analog mountain bikes, probably anywhere from the high 20s to low 30s in terms of weight. Oh, really? So a Trek or a Giant is going to be something like, could be as much as 30 pounds. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that. I thought they were like... You know, I'm, I'm looking at um, 
and wheel sizes are gonna are gonna change it. So, uh, sure. you know, sure. I'm looking at like the giant Trance, uh, which is one of their full suspension EM or uh, full suspension mountain bikes, standard analog bike. Right. That comes in about the the 30 pound range. All right. When you're talking about specialized, etc., etc., etc. If you add a mid drive motor and battery to that, you're really going to be adding at least 20 pounds, really. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. So now think. You know, it's it's like being transported to the early days of mountain bikes with steel frames, where you suddenly do have to pedal a forty to fifty pound bicycle, um, and uh, that that is a consideration. You know, um, I remember when we were testing the giant uh, Trans E. I did a number of rides where just having so much fun on it and just stuck out on the trails and really didn't estimate my battery life all that well so um, <laughs> towards the end of the ride i drained the battery and had a, a pretty pretty decent climb ahead of me and uh you know just put it in the lowest gear and hamster wheeled my way up the hill and it took entirely too long uh walking probably would have been faster at that point but you know <laughs> yeah it's um it's something to consider. And, and when you talk about stuff that's more commuter oriented, a battery life is a huge consideration. Um, talking about the national average though, uh, the national average for commuting with the American you know, working public is something like 12, 12 miles. Okay. Um, so realistically, products like the Super 73 and for that matter, most commuting oriented e-bikes are well within the range of achieving your standard commute um you know all things being equal right. obviously you know it might not be like uh my father's days where his commute was uphill both ways in the snow despite growing <laughs> up in california but um you know it's uh just one of those things to consider um and then you know you're at the office you can plug it in and make sure it's fully charged before you head home but realistically a lot of these these products can achieve a commute the standard commute more likely on a on, on a single charge and so you're there and back and plug it in overnight and do it all over again the next day is the rad 73 foldable because i've seen some of them are foldable which again is useful if you're going into an office which is a lot less popular nowadays but if you're going into an office and you've got you know you're stuck for space hey if it's foldable so much the better i would have thought yeah there's a lot of a lot of e-bikes and, and bikes and commuter bikes that are that are foldable however for the super 73 zx it's not this is just a standard kind of little guy um no not not foldable it's it's fairly small i mean it's not much bigger than your average uh 20 inch bmx bike you know so if you can imagine that then you're in the ballpark so you can easily stuff it in the back of a trailer what size wheels does it have uh 20 inch but they are fat tire. So, you know, uh, 20 inch rim size, but the, the um, profile is it's like 20 by four inch. So there, there's some chunky, chunky little tires and, you know, you can like run around and probably go off road slightly if you wanted to. And, you know, I, I would say it's something that's quite versatile for camping and things like that. And then they do offer a, a model throughout their line with, um, suspension for those people that that really do want to get out there but really it still retains that same kind of cruisery form factor in regards to the frame interesting so what sort of price point is this rad 73 zx at 
pricing wise, it begins at $1,995. And it's quite a bit of money for something that, um, you know, is, I, I don't want to say toy in a negative connotation, but it is something just to go around, have fun on. It's extremely easy to use. As far as bicycles go, that's a good chunk of change. You can get a lot of bike for two grand. Um, as far as e-bikes go, well, two grand is about where the market is for a lot of e-bikes right now. Things are getting more cheap, more affordable as we go on. But, uh, you know, we're in the early days of, you know, performance e-bikes and looking at things like, uh, you know, some of the, the YDX models from Yamaha, those creep into the $3,000 range pretty easily. And, you know, giant, same deal, specialized and, and all of your other uh, bicycle manufacturers. I think a lot of that is down to build quality just of the bicycle parts. Um, again, using slightly lighter materials, um, better brakes. You're talking about hydraulic brakes instead of cable pull brakes. Um, it just seems like they're just better made. I mean, the two Yamahas that we used were really nicely done. I mean, they really were very well made. Um, fit and finish was fully up with, you know, Japanese motorcycle build quality. So I think obviously that's going to add to the expense. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, components are, you know, how, how price is determined in, in the bicycle world. So uh, group sets, you know, the actual, um, your, your shifting mechanism, braking components, all of those things are going to be radically um, uh, impactful on the price. And for the Super 73, it does have hydraulic brakes. Um, but again, it's uh, the, the model that we rode is a more street focused oriented model. So it lacks suspension. It's essentially, a, you know, for lack of a better word, and because we're a motorcycle magazine, it's a hard tail. You know, it has no, no fork suspension. It, it does, so it doesn't have front suspension. No, 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 no. So yeah, you probably, again, it's got the very fat tires and there's your suspension right there. Yeah, and they, they definitely help, you know, it's got some, you know, uh, relatively low PSI kind of chunky tires that, that gobble up, you know, most of the pavement because we rode around the Peterson Autom Automotive Museum in um, Los Angeles and just kind of rode around on the street and did some stuff. And really it doesn't shy away from being bunny hopped and every curb cut that I could possibly find. So you're gonna have plenty of fun. But bear in mind, you're, you know, bunny hopping and throwing around a, you know, I, I would estimate something like a 50 pound um, little e-bike. So um, it's a lot, uh, lot heavier landing than, um, than my BMX bike, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. I think it's, I think it's actually closer to 60 pounds if I remember correctly. Sure. Yeah. You know, that, that's just kind of where we're at because battery electric motor adds a considerable amount of weight to any sort of bicycle that you're, you're trying to, to uh, play around with. It does. I mean, we're sounding a little, almost a little down on these, but actually I don't think either of us are. I, I'm very pro these things. I think they, I think they're great. Um, I'm just having a little bit of difficulty figuring out exactly which one to take the plunge on. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different, different factors in there and, you know, size and weight and what have you. So you didn't feel any kind of restrictions with the 20 inch wheel size. Um, there was no problems with that at all. 
No, not not for what its intended use is. You know, again, something like the Super 73, because it's more of a, a style oriented product, um, it's really, it, its main focus is to attract as many people as possible just to get on the thing and cruise around the neighborhood or beach or, you know, parking lot, camping site, whatever. It's just about being functional and easy to use. Um, so everything about it, in that sense, it's, uh, I would say, a success. It's definitely on the more lifestyle side of things, like I mentioned before, where, whereas when I ride an e-bike, um, like an e-road bike or an EMTB, that's a more focused and uh, I would say training oriented tool in my garage. Um, you know, some, something like the Super 73, the ZX model or any of the other models in the lineup, that's really about just having fun and kind of ripping around the neighborhood for a couple minutes. <laughs> right. So, so overall, um, are e-bikes here to stay? I think that's a silly question, but I'm, I'm curious on, on your take. Yeah, I would say, of course, as we kind of push on into the future, battery technology improves, things become a little bit more lightweight. Um, I, it's tough because we're really seeing a, a growth spurt in the EMTB and just e-bike segment overall within the past probably four to five years. It's really, really gotten into a good groove and things are improving nicely. You know, there's still the controversy with uh, e-bikes hitting the trails and other things like that. As far as, oh, you know, conventional bicycles, they're, that's, that's the true bicycle sport and, and e-bikes are cheating. Well, no, there's plenty of reasons why someone would want a, an e-bike over it. And yeah, I definitely think that they're here to stay because really in my context, something like a conventional e-bike just extends the ride and helps me over those hurdles that, um, you know, might otherwise kind of gas me out and, you know, put me in the direction of going home instead of hitting a couple more downhill sections. And then, you know, things on the other end of the spectrum, the fun spectrum. So stuff like the super 73 ZX that we just rode, that's really about just going out there and, you know, having a laugh for a couple minutes with your friends or popping down to the shop. And that's just about making things easy. So, you know, as we see, you know, with electric skateboards and other, you know, e-scooters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's really just about making life a little bit easier. I, I would agree with that. Um, like I said, we've only ridden the Yamahas, but we really enjoyed those. And it, it took away the sort of the hill factor because where we happen to live, no matter which, no matter where we go, there's always a hill somewhere, which is a limiting factor if you're just on a standard bicycle. And, uh, and it's not so much a really steep short hill because you can just put it in first gear and like you say, sort of hamster wheel your way up it and, and be done. It's these long gradual climbs that just sap you. And these e-bikes were really terrific at just negating that. So we were able to say, you know, what, let's just head over to, you know, Westlake and have a cup of coffee. And it's, you know, 15 miles away and there are several hills in, in between, not huge challenging hills, but nevertheless hills that for people in their 60s would half kill us, despite the fact that we're relatively fit. It, and it just wasn't a factor. So all of a sudden, we could go anywhere we wanted and, and pretty much do anything we wanted. And they were really great. Very, we were very impressed with them. 
So I, I think there's definitely a place for these things. I do like to think they're a, a gateway, um, gateway product for motorcycles because I'm a motorcycle guy first and foremost. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the market develops and where it goes. And presumably in five to 10 years, we're going to start seeing an influx of, or dealers will start to see an influx of, of people coming in going, you know, I've had a Rad 73 ZX for the last five years and I love it, but you know, I want to go a little bit further afield and I need a little bit more performance. So, um, you know, I think I'll buy myself a motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely on the same page. And to that point as well, more motorcycle manufacturers are co-branding with various uh, bicycle manufacturers to create their own line. Um, Yamaha has actually worked with, uh, you know, different bicycle manufacturers uh, to create their current crop of e-bikes and Ducati has done the same thing. And I really don't see a limit in terms of other manufacturers jumping in when the time is right for them. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I think we're going to see some greater proliferation and uh, it'll keep pushing on. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. I appreciate your opinion. Interesting chat. Um, go e-bikes. Cool. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. In the following segment, Don chats with associate editor Damon Powell about the new Kawasaki KLR650. The venerable KLR has been around since 1987 and Damon has written all of them. I hope you enjoyed this segment too. Well, I, uh, in 1987, or maybe it was fall of 1986, I was just seeking something to release uh, the stress of work and uh, the the traffic that I had to deal with. And I, I had already previously had a Harley Davidson. I took over payments and I, I just, motorcycles was always the answer to enjoying um, a weekend out for a ride, exploring a little adventure. And um, I pinned it down to something that could do both dirt and street because I loved both. Uh, probably less the street, of course. Um, I do like dirt and what is available in Southern California uh, behind locked gates or be uh, with lo open gates. Um, we have a lot of forest. There was a lot of uh, uh, new stuff that I had not seen or maybe I had as a kid or something as a Boy Scout. Or um, So it was the KLR 650 I uh, pointed, pinned it down to and uh, I went and picked one up at a dealer and this was my first uh, off the showroom floor bike and uh, the KLR 650 just fit that bill. Not only that, it looked like those pairs of Dakar um, full fairing type of uh, big tank uh, pairs of Dakar bikes back in the eighties uh, that, I, that I fantasized of uh, being a participant of at one time or another. Um, that is what I saw and read more about than anything on a track or off-road at the time. And, uh, you know, that was where um, America, well, I don't even think there was even American participants back then, but Europeans were, were you know, heroes in their home countries uh, as participants in these uh, races. So the KLR650, um, I would go out every weekend uh, out of Santa Ana, right up the, I believe the five and grand. I lived in that area, worked just a block away, but I was stuck in traffic every, every day. 
And, you know, we lived near the Orange Crush. I would just probably wear a backpack and uh, go for a ride. And, and uh, the more I rode around alone, the more I thought somebody had to be organizing some rides or something. And now I'd love to share that with a with a girlfriend, my my day's route or what I saw. And and there's had to been other people that had that had to been like minded and wanted to do the same. So I did some research uh, and it was the LAP to V. It was uh, 1987. I think that came out, uh, you know, Thanksgiving weekend. That's the, the Los Angeles to Barstow to Vegas dual sport ride for somebody who wouldn't know what LA B2B is. Correct. Correct. And this was the uh, the first year of it being a two-day ride because it was really a one-day ride that followed a protest ride leaving Barstow to Vegas in response to the, uh, the closing of the uh, Barstow to Vegas race. And... Uh, it became what it was, but by 87, you know, when participants didn't know what was going on behind the, the scene of the races, but it was a two-day dual sport ride, and uh, the majority of the bikes were all converted Honda 650s, XR650, uh, sorry, XR600s, and that was the majority of them, or anything else, there were, you know, Yamahas, some other earlier models, and the KLR650 was new on the scene, it had that certain look, and... Um, uh, we went as far as uh, me and two buddies of mine, we, we painted them Kawasaki green. Now, the two buddies I had, uh, we formed a club. And uh, when I was living in Santa Ana, I'd come and visit them. And uh, we would sit at a cafe somewhere in the San Fernando Valley at a, at a coffee shop or something and talk about, oh, we need to start a club or something. And we came up with the name, uh, started with team and... Uh, had to have something with dual sport in it. And then we came up with, of course, the dog figure, which was Team Dual Dogs. And um, that was created and really uh, pushed and promoted with the help of Gene Offers at the at the Anaheim, or maybe it was, yeah, I think it was the Anaheim or maybe Long Beach, but I'm pretty sure it was Anaheim at the motorcycle show. And um, that had to have been September, October, November, somewhere in there. That was the fall of 89 that we had flyers made up. And me and Gene would go around and drop off dozens of them at every booth there was. Uh, white brothers, you know, and I got to chat with the, the, the two white brothers. But they'd be everywhere. And so we started getting calls in. And um, um, the club was formed through uh, with the help of District 37, which was just forming at the same time as well with some other clubs and promoters that this was all new and uh, you had Larry Langley you had Jerry Counts um, and District 37 with their LAB Los Angeles Barcelona Vegas and, and uh, the club was formed and we started getting members and the first ride that I assembled was the dog run in 1990 and I think that was scheduled in April March April or May uh, just after the rains, and um, that was a good time to leave the San Fernando Valley, go up into the Angeles National Forest, and that was our first club ride. It started at a motorcycle shop, and it ended at the home of Gene and Steve Offers, and uh, we had a big barbecue, and I couldn't tell you how many members we had, but it might have been 20, 30, 40. I'm not sure, and there, 
non-members were always welcomed as well. And so you laid out this all this ride on a KLR 650. Yeah, that's all I had until about 1991. So yeah, I spent a lot of time on that bike, and I was in construction. I I was I was a an unlicensed contractor at the time. I was always on my own, um, with even without a license and and doing work. I'd already had some skill sets that uh, uh, kept me busy, and um, I would sometimes take some time off. <laughs> and that was after I met Gene and Steve Offers. They were customers of mine. And uh, she would remember seeing me doing wheelies out of her park, out of her driveway, and uh, with a, with one of the brothers, uh, Kevin Davenport, and there was Rob, and uh, the, the two guys I started the club with. Cheeto Pastor was a neighbor, and he was involved. And Gene got involved. And uh, Steve helped out, you know, he made, he helped make out the flyers. And, and my job was to go out and course a route and uh and uh, i believe back then we were using the old jart charts which were enduro roll charts at the time very crude uh you know the arrows were just 45 degree arrows and uh uh with limited information i would jot all that down send it off to anaheim and um the charts were produced and so that's how i was first starting out putting together a ride getting that information onto a roll chart you know a little two inch continuous uh cash register type receipt that you roll up in your box and um yes it was the klr 650 that brought all that together um had to because i knew southern california so well and i wanted to even see a lot more of of the of California and possibly some other states. Um, that bike did all the work. And uh, if I wasn't out charting a course, I was spending time just trying to go as fast as I could on the thing like I was in a Paris to car race and utilizing every fire road I could find in the Angeles uh, and into, um, I think the Los Padres and anything local and deserts and then the sequoias and um so by 1991 i think we brought on the sequoia signet challenge and through the years i had up to uh, nine years uh nine events a year and i've up to this point now have organized over 80 events two were in baja um some were um involved in with some other uh, promoters or organizers. And um, so the KLR was always, the, that was the, what I referred to as the gateway drug to my obsession with scouting, charting, organizing rides and having the ability to uh, pass that on to other enthusiasts and getting together on weekends and um, Two of my rides became AMA Nationals, and that was the Sequoia Sing Challenge out of Lake Isabella and the Six Days of Northern California. I had the chance to go up there for weeks on end and, and scout routes. A lot of it required a lot of trail clearing. A lot of my trails and routes required a lot of trail clearing. It wasn't just fire roads, and it wasn't just road to get there. It was a lot of single track as well. I wanted to be able to provide 
uh, all writers of all skills uh, something that they can write. And it was the KLR. And so uh, through the years with Ultimate Motorcycling, I've had the chance to review the bikes. We had the 2014, I believe, limited. And um, or what was that, 2014 and a half? And and then <laughs> recently the, the 2022. Uh, the, the 14 and a half, was impressive. They had they had stiffened up the suspension, which is what the bike needed. Uh, I I tore that bike up in uh, my '87, and I believe I even had a another one after that, an '89, I think it was. And I don't recall how I got that, but I had two of them, probably because I beat the heck the, the heck out of the first one. I broke the rear shock because I rode double. I Gene offers uh, I couldn't keep her off the bike, uh, and and I enjoyed. Uh, sharing that experience and she enjoyed being a passenger and hanging on and and uh, seeing stuff she never saw you know not from a, the back of a motorcycle so uh, the KLR did that it had passenger pegs it had a big tank it held plenty of fuel and I had plenty of uh, miles to go to go scout and uh, explore so the 2022 came up and um, we were invited to the uh, the former Don Imus Ranch, and now owned by the RFD TV uh, group, and um, they added on some more uh, acreage to the to the place, and uh, that was really exciting. So we got it on the bike. We spent three days on the bike with Kawasaki. I'm sorry, that was two, and I got the chance to ride it home, and really enjoyed the bike. It was a big improvement. It is a big improvement over the 87. It's stiffer. It has better suspension. And that was the what I felt about the 87 was how much flex there was. The suspension was, it was under, undersized, you know, it, it could have been strengthened up. And uh, they just did a much better improvement. It didn't get any faster. Um, but they do have fuel injection now, which is a lot, lot less troublesome than a carburetor. It is. And, you know, uh, I tried to do a, as much improvement on that old CV uh, carb that I could. And, you know, without much luck, uh, the more you messed with them, I think the more we, you know, I messed it up. <laughs> but, yeah, the fuel injection did improve it, especially um, in the high elevations. We got up to 10,000 feet, and then I did it as well on my own. And I got the chance to ride it back. So I think I rode it for an additional six days uh, back from Albuquerque and exploring some areas I've never seen and some others that I had probably traversed before but couldn't remember. Um, but great bike. They did a, a, a big improvements on the suspension again and strengthened up the frame. They made it longer. They gave it a better rake. And uh, I think the tank was bigger as well. And this time it's got uh, LED lighting on the Adventure model, which is what I rode. And I also had it uh, rode both the ABS and the non-ABS models. I rode the ABS model with Kawasaki on those two days and I got to ride the non-ABS uh, thinking where I was headed was not needed. And um, the truth is I don't, I couldn't, I didn't feel any difference between the two. I thought the ABS model would be, you know, it would stutter or shudder as you uh, gas or hit the brakes. And uh, that's not the case. Uh, the, um, 
the non-ABS works just as well as the ABS. I couldn't couldn't tell the difference. So what is the KLR 650 on your, your six-day ride back? What did it really excel at? What was it best at? Carrying the gear, <laughs> being comfortable behind the windscreen on any uh, long routes on pavement, highway. I had to ride from um, two and a half, three hours from Albuquerque to Elephant Butte and uh, was really surprised how well uh, that windscreen worked because the earlier models did not work. After settling into there and heading out the next day for the next six days, the, the bike, uh, it the tires didn't do well. You might have seen my photos with uh, the front end swapping out uh, in a in a in a water puddle. Uh, I wasn't racing. I wasn't going fast. I just had, it was right in the middle of a turn, and the front just swapped out in front of me. So maybe change out the the stock tires. It's the same tires that came out in the, with the bike in '87. So the tires have been around for a while as well. Well, they've been improved quite a bit since then as well. Um, other than that, the trick for me was not to drop it uh, again, uh, and I had to kind of plan things that way, or I really had to do my homework before I did got into anything too difficult, which I did. And um, surprisingly, the bike just did very well. Yes, it gained 25 or less pounds, uh, but what was gained was is worth it. And I'll take I'll take the 22 over the 87 anytime. So you're just saying that they they when the bike got stiffened up, the frame and the suspension, that at the same time also added weight to the bike. Yes, correct. It did. Uh, the extension of the swing arm, the strengthening of the frame in spots. I don't think they added any weight to the motor, though they did do some work with the gearing and everything. The fuel injection didn't hold. It doesn't didn't weigh any much more. Uh, the battery got reduced in size and weight, but you're carrying uh, a frame to hold the the bags, the the panniers, the uh, uh, the shads. Is that what they call them? Yeah, shad. It's the company that makes the uh, panniers. How did they work, and how durable are they? Uh, when I did drop the bike after the front swapped out, it. I'm glad that I actually was there because the uh, the the right side hard bag had probably prevented me from twisting my ankle bad. Plus you had the, the the frame guard, which added some weight as well. And that kept uh, some space between the dirt and the frame with my foot jammed in it in the fall. What was great was that the shad had actually, uh, it came off of the, uh, the support frame and um, it popped right back on. Believe it or not, nothing broke. I latched it back on in, into the place and uh, I took off. Uh, it was a bit heavy trying to get it back up. And uh, my first attempts, I I gave up pretty quickly. And I waited for my host of the day and my leader who I followed, uh, my old friend, Roger Patterson. <laughs> and um, he didn't show <laughs> So after about 20 minutes of waiting, he was at the other end sitting there waiting to take a photo of me coming around the turn. So by the time we did catch up, he was heading back to check on me. But after waiting about 20 minutes, I thought, you know, if I got five more days of this, I better learn to be able to handle this on my own. I, I, I gave it everything I got. I lifted it back up. So it weighs at what? 480 pounds plus the gear I had. 
uh, probably mounted on it. Uh, all my clothing, you know, I had to carry five days worth of clothes. I think it's more like three. Yeah. So it was getting up there and uh, yeah, I had to pick this thing up. It might be a little bit more top heavy with uh, the extra weight. And, um, but I got it up and um, not in the best conditions. Uh, I was at least, at least I was out of the mud hole, but got it up, got it started up again, caught up back with Roger. He was heading back towards me and we talked and I explained it to him. So the rest of the five days, the goal was not to drop it again. <laughs> and I didn't. And uh, that was what was great. So avoid water holes and I was fine. And uh, we did hit some water. Uh, as I was driving, as I was riding back from uh, from Albuquerque to, to Roger's house in Elephant Butte, the, the clouds were forming and you can see the rain ahead. And I knew what I was getting myself into. I heard about the uh, monsoons coming in. The thing about monsoons is it comes in, in cells, scattered cells, and you could actually watch those cells on your phone uh, utilizing um, any weather app. So I would see the cells. I knew kind of, I had a good idea. I'd play it in uh, video motion and see how it was moving. It was going from south to north and I had to kind of skirt between them if I could. And I left at certain times of the day just to avoid them. I even held back in some places. So I got rained on either way. I, you know, I, I still had got poured on and I got hailed on. And um, the big fairing and all that front end uh, plastic kept me dry. I never got wet. I was wearing climb gear, and uh, which is warm weather gearing. It had vents. And, um, it breathed real well. And yet it protected me from getting too wet where I was heading, what I was doing. And not going at high speeds or anything, but that was great. So every night I'd come into this new town, wouldn't reach my destination. It, I, it would be longer than I thought. I, five days was not planned. I figured I could get home in three, and it would just be five. It, it was a total of eight days on the motorcycle and enjoyed every minute. It was 1,800 miles as well. It, it brought back a lot of memories. And um, the bike, being a single, 650, at the weight that it uh, has with the with the fuel range that it has it is still a the the best designed bike for um for the general public that bike's been around since 87 and it's been improved on and uh you you, you can't beat that kawasaki really did a real job they didn't go overboard on what some of the group riders wanted you know it could have been a bigger true adventure bike uh, could have been kept at that uh, mid-size, what we could still refer to as a dual sport or mid-size adventure bike. It's definitely not a race bike. It's not a European lightweight race bike with lights, which is what I do currently own. And um, the, the bike, I, I get on the bike just to go to Home Depot or food shopping, throw the food in the, the bags and head back home. Just the convenience of you know, starting it up, you know, it just feels comfortable. I, I, it feels like a second skin from my time and years of experience on the bike. I spent a lot of hours on that motorcycle. <laughs> so that motorcycle led, led to the club. It led to all the rides. And that's how it all started.
Okay. So is there anything about the new KLR650 that would dissuade a owner of an older KLR650 from upgrading? Uh, I, I would want it. Um, uh, though you're going to have a hard time probably uh, getting those old models out of the hands of those guys. They, you know, they're still riding them and uh, enjoying them. And they're buying them used. And uh, But yes, the 2022 has been greatly improved. And it just, it, it, it performs uh, so much better. And uh, they did their homework. I would recommend the bike to anybody who's looking at a KLR650. The price is right. They did their homework there, Kawasaki. And um, it should be another great seller. It's been around since 87, you know, 30, 34, 35 years. And uh, uh, that's pretty incredible. I don't know of any other model that has done that. It's uh, definitely a long runner. Uh there actually are a couple, like remember the Yamaha TW200 is from that same era. Uh, this, I think that might be the the one that uh, the Honda, oh, the Honda Rebel's gone. The Honda, I don't know how long the Ruckus has been around, but yes, it's definitely one of those long running bikes uh, that uh, D, the Suzuki DR650 would be another one that would fit into that long running ca category. Right. I think that came out in 91. Yeah, definitely of, of this, a similar era, but so you're you're you if you were to buy one as an old KLR650 owner, you would be a satisfied customer with a new one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't give it any thought, tell you the truth, just because of the much improved uh, suspension and uh, uh, the stiffness in the in the frame. Um, it doesn't flex like it did then. I think that I believe the earlier models had that removable subframe. Well, they incorporated that into the full frame now, uh, along with more gusseting. And um, it, it just feels stronger, it, more uh, confident. With the, all the work that they did, it's become more reliable as well. So you're getting the protection and the reliability at a great price on something that's going to take you just about anywhere. And um, if let's say I wanted to go ride, you know, Europe and, and South America and on something, I, I doubt it would be a, a big heavy twin all loaded up. It would be a lightweight single cylinder, maybe not so much lightweight. You're going to have to carry a lot of things and uh, the subframe, the frame, all that's going to have to hold it all in place. And uh, you, you got to take the KLR650. Okay. Well, Damon, thank you very much. Greatly enjoyed hearing, recounting the old days and then bringing it up to the new. And uh, thank you for talking to us. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, we'll have to do this again. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> Thanks. Uh